The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 14th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. David Leonhardt, New York Times columnist, who I really like, has this advice on two of the big stories of the day. And by stories of the day, I mean stories of the last few weeks, nothing to do with this horrible shooting in Washington, D.C. So one of these stories has been dominating the news. The other has taken advantage of the fact that the first story is dominating the news, just in general, taken advantage of the fact that the spotlight has been elsewhere. So on the one hand, we have the Trump-Russia connection. Interesting, fascinating, compelling. What a cast of characters. A scurrilous assault on my honor. I do believe I am bum-fuzzled by your palaver, Miss Harris. The other one is the Senate health care bill. Here's what we know about the Senate health care bill. Nothing. We know nothing. Because as a staffer admitted, they are not stupid enough to tell the public what health care bill they'll be getting. There's no markup, no hearings, no outside input, which a lot of the good government types will tell you that's bad. But I got to say, it's pretty much how Beyonce dropped her Lemonade album, right? And we all like that. So about the Russia investigation, we don't know a lot of the truth. We don't know what the president knew about Russian interference. We don't know what he knew about Mike Flynn knowing about Russian interference. So that's why we're having the hearings, so that we can know. About the health care bill, no one except its few shady authors are getting a hearing at all. But Leonhardt, in his story, which is headlined, The Media's Missing the Story, quotes Chris Murphy, Democratic Senator of Connecticut, saying, focus 10% of your attention and outrage on the Sessions testimony, 90% on the secret health care bill that's speeding to a vote. Okay, but obvious question, how? What does that mean? How do I do that with my focus? How do I recalibrate my outrage? Uh, and what do I do once I recalibrate? Okay, I could phone a senator. Um, Should I phone him nine times about the health care bill for every one time about Jeff Sessions? That doesn't seem to have a point. There's no CBO score. There's no bill. How can we get outrage? We don't know what it is. I know the Republicans know that that's the dynamic, but that's the dynamic. It's purposefully been kept under wraps. I know Senator Murphy isn't saying that the Russia hearings are not worth something or that they're a distraction. But really, that's the message if he's telling us to refocus our attention. You know, we we live in a representative republic. There's only so much that the average citizen can do in response to something that's real and you could look at, let alone in response to a rumored secret where powerful people hold the levers of letting us know what that secret is. What can we possibly do about it? I think it'll work out. I mean, the bill might pass and that would be terrible, but at least I think the process will eventually come to a point where people will react and be up in arms like they were at every other iteration of this bill. Uh, It'll get a CBO vote. Senators will be called. Pressure will be put on governors, Republican governors, who can tell senators, yeah, I could live with that or no, I'm not going to live with that. Within a couple weeks, I think this whole thing will be a lot less opaque. I cannot say the same for the Russia investigation. I can predict that my opinion slash outrage pie will not shrink, though I can't attest to the proportions of each issue thereof. On the show today, thoughts on post-shooting Twitter, labels that don't help, and ways of thinking about bad things that might. But first, let's change the mood and give you something fun and cheery. Let's talk in depth about cannibalism. Uh, wait, Mike, how is that fun? 
Well, silly, if they're eating each other, they're not eating you. Bill Shutt is here to talk about this being a dog-eat-dog world. Okay, I'll stop right there, except I've heard the interview. I do not stop right there. Warning, this may be disturbing to small children or small gerbils who may or may not want to turn to their moms for comfort. The birds do it, the bees do it, even highly educated fleas do it. Let's do it. Let's eat our own species. Cannibalism. Yeah, the secret to society, even human civilization, is the same as the secret to Soylent Green. It's people. It's eating people. In his new book, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History, Bill Schutt details uh, just that, cannibalism. And how, indeed, it is much more natural than we ever admitted or knew. Hello, Bill. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Great. How do you get fascinated in this? Uh, it's kind of funny. Because when, when people, I haven't talked to people in 20, 30 years, and they'll hook up on social media, and they're like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I went to grad school and studied vampire bats, and my first book was about blood-feeding creatures, and now I'm writing about cannibalism. Nobody's really surprised, um, basically because... I've always been into the macabre. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a zoologist, but you know, as I said, I studied vampire bats for my PhD. Um, I had a monkey as a kid, so I was always into animals and zoology. Studying vampire bats, the opportunity arose at a certain point for me to write a book about blood feeders, and and um, I found myself sort of intrigued by the idea of demystifying concepts like vampirism, and then the follow-up being uh, cannibalism. And I found a really interesting niche between the sensationalized garbage that was out there and and some of the academic work that was also on the scene. So it's been fun. And in both vampires and cannibals, you have this crossover from the zoological to cultural phenomenon, and it's become something else when uh, human beings get a hold of it and create myths out of it. And they do have a lot of similarities. I mean, insofar as these things that actually exist, and yet they're turned into something demonic when humans tell stories about it. Yeah, kind of. I mean, both of them are really Western taboos. And um, yeah, to be able to go in and take a zoological stance and look at it from the, from the perspective of somebody who studies uh, animals for a living, and then move into uh, humans, I just find that really interesting. I've been very lucky. Now, you say a Western taboo, but, you know, you have a lot of uh, writing about China, and it seems a modern taboo, right, in China to admit that the Chinese practiced uh, cannibalism for a long time. So what is the truth of the Eastern versions of cannibalism? They did not get the same type of pressure that uh, that Westerners were under, uh, and, and this goes for a lot of different cultures. But the reason I talked about the Chinese is because they they kept such great records. I mean, their historical records are, are impeccable. If you if you go to some place that you know somebody that lived on an island somewhere and their culture was destroyed, well, you don't have those records. But the Chinese did not get the you know they didn't get that take that we've been listening to for two thousand years, starting from the Greeks and then the Romans and then you know William Shakespeare and the Brothers Grimm and Sigmund Freud. Uh, the ball just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The cannibalism is the, is the the worst thing that you could do. Up until recently, well, relatively recently, the the Chinese did not have that uh, input. Now, of course, they do. But really, culture is king, and it, the the things that you're taught in your culture that are correct, whether they're funerary rites like you know, consuming your dead rather than eating them or, uh, or, or culinary cannibalism in the case of, of the Chinese. 
it's just a matter of what your culture dictates is the, is the right thing. Yeah, you have that. Who, which ancient philosopher or uh, historian was it talking about burning the dead to one group and eating the dead for another? Yeah, it's Homer, really. And, yeah. and um, I think the whole idea of portraying groups of people who were unlike you, the other, you know, th- that was used again and again against uh, uh, against groups who were either uh, found to, to practice cannibalism or were accused of being cannibals uh, because you could really do whatever you wanted to them once you placed them into that category. And, you know, I talk about Columbus. You know, the first time he came to the New World, he described the people there as really nice. Everybody got along. He thought they were going to be fit to be ruled and everything was going to work out fine. When he didn't find any gold in the New World, they, they looked for another resource and, th- and that became humans. So Queen Isabella had told him, listen, you, if, if these people are uh, if if you think they can become God fearing people and, 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 and uh, you know, good Christians, uh, then you can't enslave them. But if they're cannibals, then all bets are off. And lo and behold, the next couple of trips that he made to the new world, uh, you know, the, all of a sudden these groups that were these nice, pleasant folks were relabeled as cannibals. So yeah. you could really do anything you wanted to them. Thus demonstrating the pitfalls of the motivated anthropologist. <laughs> so your book starts small tadpoles builds to mammals ends up with humans. Why did you feel it necessary to tell the story that way? Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it followed almost like an evolutionary line where you still, where I started out with invertebrates and then moved into the, uh, you know, amphibians and, and, and reptiles and birds and then into mammals and then, um, ancient humans. There was sort of a, yeah, an evolutionary slant that I took to it. It, it just, it, you know, that sort of thing makes sense to me to, to follow in that way. And it seemed to me that when it came to the invertebrates, it's so demonstrable that there's cannibalism going on. And one reason is a large sample size. Like you stand in the middle of that bog and you see tadpoles eating other tadpoles and no one would dispute it. You're looking at it. Then mm-hmm. when it gets to primates or bears, uh, it hinges on one or two examples of observation. So maybe Jane Goodall uh, saw a chimpanzee eating another chimpanzee's baby and then like, years later also saw that. It becomes harder to confirm. And then when it becomes to humans, you got people lying about it. So it becomes, even yeah. if it's observed once, it's you know wielded as, like you were talking about, it's wielded as a weapon and also lied about. So the further Absolutely. up the evolutionary chain, the harder it is to document. Yeah, I think not only that, though, but once you go from, um, you know, something like uh, insects or, or spiders that have that have sometimes hundreds and hundreds of young and cannibalism is just, uh, you know, is a perfectly natural phenomenon for a number of reasons. Once you get into the into the vertebrates and then up into the mammals, there are less young there, are, you know, there. And so there and there are less individuals and there's more individual recognition. Um, you, you know, if you back up and look at something like a codfish that lays a million eggs, you know, the, these eggs and, and the fry that hatch from the eggs are not looked on as, you know, there's Tony and there's Sarah. They're looked upon as you know, as raisins. So it's a lot easier to document cannibalism when you're looking at at a creature that, you know, that might have thousands and thousands of young and, and treats them like food. And then gerbils who eat their young, the calculation mm-hmm. is what's calculation for them? 
a lot of times when you see that type of thing, gerbils and hamsters, and, and I talk about about Syrian hamsters, that you're putting them into a stressful condition. That is, and that's another reason why you'll get cannibalism is because you take these animals that are desert dwellers, they're solitary, they come out at night for about 90 minutes every 24 hours, uh, and then you're putting them into a habit trail, and, and the dogs or cats are, 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 are peering in at them, kids are handling them, they're pretty much solitary unless they're trying to find a mate. And, uh, and and now you've got three or four of them in this. So it's just a real uh, stressful situation when you get to that point. Mm-hmm. Is uh, stress a big predictor for when mammals will engage in it? Absolutely. Yeah, overcrowding, stress, um, lack of food. When you started in on your book, what was the uh, state of consensus on the prevalence of cannibalism among humans? Recently, and this is something that I think probably from the early 1980s on, we are taking a a much closer look at groups of individuals before we label them as cannibals. You know, in the old days, if they found bones that looked like they'd been split or gnawed on or 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 busted up, then 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 the cannibal tag was was applied to these groups, whether it was prehistoric man or or whether it was uh, you know groups that were that that we ran into in, uh, in in far off places. Now we are being much more careful about that, and 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 we need a lot more evidence before we say that that actual cannibalism took place because you can prepare bones and you can smash bones and you can move bones after uh, after people die, and it has nothing to do with eating them. So I think that the the general trend is is that we believe that less there is less human cannibalism that's taken place than we might have thought 20, 30 years ago. But there was also was it Bill Ahrens who you interviewed yeah. who he put forth a pretty uh, well regarded theory about mm-hmm. just cannibalism being a myth. Period. I talked to Bill Ahrens who who's a fascinating guy, and I think that this is not a person who really wanted to go out there and prove that cannibalism never took place uh, at, at any organized manner in any culture that you can name. And if you look between the lines of his book, and he pretty much admitted it to me, what he was trying to show was, one, he was trying to show that cannibalism, the term cannibalism, was used to bludgeon cultures that were different from whoever was doing the bludgeoning throughout history. That was number one. And number two was the fact that he wanted anthropologists to be more careful before they laid the cannibalism tag on groups. And I believe he was responsible for that. I guess people who read the book or uh, people who hear about the book, maybe you're talking to someone at a party, and then, of course, the conversation will come to, well, what about you? You didn't eat human flesh, but you came close. Technically, I did eat human flesh. And and that that really started as, you know, the, the other big surprise that I got, besides the fact that cannibalism was so prevalent in the animal kingdom, was the fact that medicinal cannibalism was so prevalent throughout Europe for hundreds of years. And this is on top of the fact that we had this Western taboo. Starting in the Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, right up until the early 20th century, body parts throughout Europe, anything you can imagine, from fat to bones to guts, blood, were used in medical preparations to treat just about anything that you can imagine could go wrong with you. And so uh, until the until the Europeans decided that they were going to make that disappear. So you can't really find a, a whole lot of that documentation. The last vestiges of that that exist in the West, uh, I think, are people who believe that by consuming their placentas, they're getting a medical benefit for it. So I tracked down some some 
some folks who, who in a sense, did this for a living. They had um, clients that they would uh, that that they would set up meetings with, and and then after the person gave birth, they would go to the hospital, take their placenta, and they would prepare it in any number of ways, from powdered form to tinctures to you know to preparing it fresh as sort of like a smoothie. So a guy who was a who really studied this as a scientist put me in touch with this woman in Texas. And I contacted her. My semester had started. I teach at, at LIU Post out here. And I thought, well, it might be email. Maybe I'm going to Skype her. You know, I wasn't prepared to do any more traveling. And she said, well, that's too bad because I, I just had a baby and um, I've got my placenta in the freezer. You could come down here. My my husband's a chef. He could make it for you any way you wanted. You, know, you, could, you can have it on a taco. We'll make it also. Wow. It's all coming together perfectly. Yeah. So within 10, you know, I'm thinking to myself, if it's, you know, 10 years down the road and I wrote a book about cannibalism and I did not go down there and do this, I'd be kicking myself in the ass. So mm-hmm. within 10 minutes, I'd You'd be eating your heart out, Bill. Yeah. Eating, <laughs> but I'm bum. Um, I would not have been happy. So within 10, 15 minutes, I'd, I'd bought a ticket, went down to Dallas and you know, the rest is kind of, uh, the, one of the more interesting, I, I think, uh, stories in the book. Yes. I don't want to give it all away, but doesn't taste like pork. Doesn't taste like chicken. Nah, not really. Think of it this way. Go up to a cow, and it depends on what part you eat. It's going to taste differently. So if you eat the cow's liver, it's going to taste like liver. If you eat the cow's you know, muscle, it's going to taste like steak All or right. something. yeah, so, that's true. So it's really the same thing with humans. Yeah. They're sure that placenta tastes nothing like uh, you know, biceps. So it's just a matter of what part you decide to eat. And uh, you know, nowadays there are some folks who think that they're getting a, a medicinal benefit, a, a hormone boost from consuming their own placentas. I guess the last question just stems from something not in the book, but what you told me in the beginning of this conversation. You had a monkey as a kid? <laughs> yeah, squirrel monkey. Back in the old days, uh, you know, you could go into a, a, a department store and, and, and buy, buy a monkey in a cage for 30 bucks. Oh my God, where'd you live with this monkey? <laughs> um, Lindenhurst. You lived in suburban Long Island with a Absolutely. monkey. Did you, you know, know, my, did you know any other kids with monkeys? Uh, I don't know anyone who ever had one, but, um, but you know, my father was this, was a milkman. He'd come home really tired in the, in the middle of the day. And if my mother and I had gone out to whites of Massapequa with this department store and, and just on a whim, saw a monkey bought it, brought it home. And, um, and there it was in the living room when he came home. So and just to show you how, how cool my parents were about the, the, the kinds of things I was into that they just looked at me and they said, well, you know, they can't, you can't really keep them in a parrot cage. We're going to have to build a, uh, you got to build a bigger cage for him, Billy. So, so I, I took a tape measure and went down to seven 11 and I measured a phone booth and, and those were the dimensions. So I built a phone booth size cage in the middle of our living room huh? in urban Long Island. And that's where Googie lived. Did you, how'd you name him Googie? And my mother did. Oh, that's cute. Did you let him out, uh, in the living room sometimes? Oh yeah, we I used to you know put a little leash on him and want to go outside. Great way to, to you know I think I was about thirteen, fourteen years old. Great great way to attract the uh, the opposite sex. Hey, you want to look at my monkey? <laughs> yeah, well if you have an actual monkey there, it's not actionable. Um, yeah, and probably can't use that line unless you actually have a monkey. <laughs> Bill Shot is the author of Cannibalism: A Perfectly Natural History. Thanks for your time, Bill. It was a pleasure. Take care. All right, take care. And now the spiel. After processing the initial news about the shooting in Northern Virginia that injured GOP House member Steve Scalise and four others during baseball practice, 
I turned to Twitter. I know. I know. I figured I'd find the usual glop of ire, blame, shame, and maybe some actual news. Two steps of knowledge forward, three steps of fake news, four doxings, five targeted harassment campaigns, and a long shower that doesn't quite wash it all the way back. This is the World Wide Web. We're all connected. But I was searching for something specific. After any act of horrendous violence, there's always a rush to define that act. And there's always a self-righteous backlash with each side honestly believing that the labels that have been applied are unfair. So when it's a jihadist, People with the word despicable in their Twitter names, you know the ilk, go on Twitter and say the media is not immediately reporting the name of the attacker. They're not reporting the ethnicity of the attacker, but we know what it is. And then about eight minutes later, when CNN or whoever reports the name and thereby the ethnicity, seeming ethnicity of the attacker, it'll be an Arabic name. There'll be a round of from the despicable people or people with despicable in their names. There'll be a round of what were the media hiding? By the way, that exact conversation happened a couple months ago with the uh, first car attack outside of Parliament. An anti-jihadist Twitter was yelling, why doesn't the media report it? And then they named a specific hate preacher. Turns out that guy happened to be in jail. Sometimes the media waits because, you know, they like to be right. But, you know, mostly it's because you nailed us. That eight-minute deal, that is that is the conspiracy right there. There's a parallel phenomenon, however, when a white man kills people and left-wing Twitter erupts in, well, why is it this terrorism? That guy who killed people in an abortion clinic in Colorado Springs, that maniac in Portland a couple weeks ago who killed two citizens who were attempting to protect a Muslim woman he was harassing. Here was the line. This is terrorism. This is just as much terrorism as any other kind of terrorism. If this were a Muslim man, we'd be calling it terrorism. Or why does white equal insane, not terrorism? First of all, we mostly did call it terrorism. Second of all, the word terrorism is a really useless label. It's a tactic or even a feeling that results from a tactic as opposed to anything of substance. And why does white equal insane? I don't know, maybe because this guy was insane. By the clinical definition, the London attackers weren't. But here in the case today, where the alleged shooter was a big Bernie Sanders supporter, I was wondering how post-shooting Twitter would react. Would they say it's important to call this terrorism? Because even when a white man does it, it's terrorist? Or would the impetus be, listen, just because you have a crazy supporter does something in your name doesn't mean the blame's on you. Which is true, by the way. The reaction was indeed more muted than it would normally be if, say, the shooter were a white man who were a big Trump backer. Trump, you see, has created an atmosphere where when someone who is a supporter does something, it redounds on him. Bernie, on the other hand, well, he shouldn't get that blame. But why? Why is that? Let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about Gabby Giffords. She was shot by an angry, deranged young man when Trump wasn't even an angry candidate, let alone an angry president. Still, that shooter was motivated by the president. President Obama said this, big speech. That shooter was motivated by the toxic environment. Pshaw, said ardent gun right enthusiasts. And depending on who you are or where you stand, President Obama was either making a good argument or a craven one. And then came a couple of shooters who targeted white policemen in the name of Black Lives Matter. Now, that was either dead solid proof that Black Lives Matter created an environment or an example of crazy people latching onto an ideology that never told them to kill. You probably believe in some of these arguments. You probably disagree with others. Is your through line who was the killer and who was killed? Or is your through line how closely the ideology matched up and motivated and took the shooter's hand? When the Portland killing happened, I think that most just listeners would say something like, Trump, of course, isn't directly to blame, but he certainly creates this angry climate. 
But ask yourself, isn't that true with the cop killer who targeted policemen in Dallas? Well, you might answer, it's different. Trump's president. Black Lives Matter is a movement with one message. It's right there in the title. Trump's a person. He should be responsible in all sorts of things, but he's not responsible and he doesn't take responsibility. And he says things like, get him out of there at rallies. That's fine. That's all fine. It's all evidence that can be weighed to argue one of the points. It might be that the most virulent anti-abortion rhetoric put that gun in the hands of that particular shooter. And that might be more the case than virulent pro-Bernie rhetoric ever put a gun in anyone's hand. But don't you see the folly in all of this? I have a much simpler way to assign blame. Maniacs gun down people because they're maniacs and they have guns. And by the way, societies have always had maniacs. It's the guns, I would think, that correlates more to the increase in mass shooting. Some of these maniacs take innocent critiques, proper critiques, maybe impassioned critiques, to the wrong level. Some maybe first hear the mainstream voices, then they're driven deeper, and they hit toxic pay dirt that exists somewhere on the internet. That all goes on. You got gun culture, anti-abortion culture, pickup artist culture, casual misogyny, anti-Semitism, the Alex Jones show. Some point or another, they've all been blamed. Someone has said that all of those things created an argument that found purchase in a madman's skull and caused someone or someones to get killed. And I think you know where I stand on most of those issues. I think we got a gun problem. I'm pro-legal abortion. I'm against casual misogyny and anti-Semitism and definitely the Alex Jones show. And yet, it's true. Maybe if one of these shooters never heard that one thing that set him off or let him down a line that eventually set him off, then people would be alive. Maybe that's true. Or maybe he just would have found another thing. But the same exact argument can be said of the Black Lives Matter movement or angry anti-Trump messaging or occasions when virulent anti-Christian maniacs shoot up churches. I'm not talking about Dylan Roof. There was an instance 10 years ago, a mass shooting in a church in Colorado Springs. So what makes one set of shooters the product of twisted ideology that we need to examine, but the other set of shooters warped minds, not warped ideology? Before you answer, I'm willing to concede there probably are some answers. There's probably a way that some of them get into maniacs' minds more than others. But, but still, I think, to find these reasons behind mass shootings are to look for reason in the unreasonable. The minds are mad. By the way, it's different with jihadis. They're not insane people who cracked. They're part of a larger group carrying out specific acts of asymmetric warfare backed by established institutions. We could debate that too, I suppose, just as we can and apparently will continue to debate if ideologies lead to shootings. It's hard not to debate it. It's hard, especially when you hate the idea, hate the idea that motivated the shooter. How do you not look at that and say, God, that just shows how wrong your idea is? The answer is because the next time it happens, the other side's going to do that to you and it won't be unfair. I say attack bad ideas as bad ideas. Attempt to disarm those who shouldn't have guns, and in my mind, society in general. But the rush to pair an idea with a mass murder is usually a fool's errand. And that's it for today's show. When Dining with a Cannibal, just producer Mary Wilson knows that if you're in the Netherlands, you always go Dutch. 
Just producer Chris Berube knows what you get when you show up late for dinner at a cannibalist gerbil's lair, the cold shoulder. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, would like to correct the last statement. Gerbil culture does not allow for social niceties like dinner appointments or subtle nonverbal shaming cues. Plus, they eat each other. The gist, a real no-win situation here. Even apologizing for jokes about cannibalism is really in poor taste. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.